And good morning, and uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. We are quickly approaching the end of our study of the book of Isaiah, and um, a study I hope that has in some way impacted your life. Um, maybe when we began this study, Isaiah was a bit of an unknown book. It was to me. It's, uh, it's been a real challenge. But maybe you can say now as we approach the end of this study, I, I think I, I know a little bit more about that book of Isaiah. In fact, maybe you can say, I think it's become one of my favorite books in the Bible. Now, if you can say that, you're in good company because I think the Apostle Paul said that. I think the book of Isaiah was one of Paul's favorite book. He quotes from Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book, including the Psalms. 36 times he refers to the book of Isaiah. In fact, he quotes Isaiah more than any other New Testament writer. So I think it's pretty safe to say Paul loved the book of Isaiah. I think it's something that he might say it's probably my favorite book. Well, why would he say that? Why would this book be his favorite book? Well, Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Jewish man raised and steeped in Judaism, a Pharisee of Pharisees, but when he encountered the living Jesus Christ and his life was changed, God commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And all throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this emphasis on God's heart for the world, God's heart for the nations. For instance, he said in chapter 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. God cares about the nations. He cares about people. He says in chapter 49, verse 6, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He's talking about the servant of the Lord, the Jesus Christ. So he said, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God so loved the world, he gave his servant of the Lord. Or we can read in chapter 52, verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of God. Or 56, verse 7, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all the peoples. Or chapter 60, verse 3, nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. So all throughout Isaiah, there is this, this broad um, uh, world universalistic uh, emphasis. God cares for people of this world. Not only his specially chosen people, the Jewish people, but for all the nations. And then there's the passage we're going to look at this morning. Chapter 65, verse 1 says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here am I, here am I. If you have a King James, I think it says, behold me, <laughs> behold me, here I am. And to a nation which did not call on my name. 
He's talking about the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. God said to the world, here I am, here I am. In contrast, the next verse, verse 2, is to the Jewish people. I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. So you got this contrast between these two verses. To the Gentile world, they weren't even seeking him. And God said, here I am. And they found him. To his own special people, he stretched out his hands and they said, we'll have nothing to do with you. Now, keep your bulletin there in Isaiah 65, but turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Because again, I think Rome, uh, Isaiah was one of Paul's favorite books. In the book of Romans alone, he quotes it, uh, I don't know how many times, 16, 17 times. In, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, if my count was right, I think he, he quotes Isaiah 14 times in just those three chapters. This is one of those places, Romans chapter 10, start with verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Quotes there from Isaiah 53. The Jewish people didn't believe his report, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Well, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their worlds to the ends, or his words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And Paul says, well, yeah, they did. Moses says, first of all, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And then Isaiah, verse 20, is very bold, and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But, verse 21, as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So how did Paul understand Isaiah 65? Verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, it's to the Gentile world. But to his own people, verse 2, he quotes then chapter 65, verse 2. All the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Two groups of people that are being focused here. The one that wasn't seeking God but found his grace. The one that had been specially chosen but spurned him. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 65 and pick up again with that passage. He's the God of outstretched hands and I've stretched them out all day long to a rebellious people, verse 2 who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. What was going on with the Jewish people? They were following their own ideas, their own thoughts. Their own thoughts of how to be religious, how to, um, uh, how to approach the, 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 the divine. Well, what did they do? Verse 3, they were people who continually provoked me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. Now, what, uh, uh, what Isaiah is going to describe is uh, a pagan practices that uh, these Jewish people were incorporating into their religious practices. Um, 
They were following their own thoughts, he said. I look at it as um, people thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're far too sophisticated to do the things that Moses laid out. We're, we're, we're people of the world. There's, we, we've stretched our horizons. There's all sorts of things where we can, we can offer sacrifices in the gardens and we can, we can burn incense on bricks. Big deal, right? No, because Exodus chapter 20, let me read it to you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, in the law of Moses, the Torah, this is what God said. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. In other words, what God was saying, if you want to bring sacrifices to me, you go get some stones and put it together and bur burn the sacrifice on that. But if you make your own stuff, if you cut your own, if you make your own bricks, the sacrifice is profane. And Isaiah is drawing back on that. And here he is, these people, his own people, they're following their own thoughts of how to approach God. He says in verse 4, they sit who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places or in the tombs. They're, they're conjuring up probably spirits from the dead, maybe ancestral worship. Again, syncretism. They're, they're bringing in these things that they're learning from, from other religions, from other cultures, because you see, they're sophisticated. They're following their own thoughts. And they, they eat swine's flesh. Now there's a good practicing Jew. And the broth of unclean meat or abominable things is put in their pots. And they say, verse 5, keep to yourself. Do not come near me for I am holier than you. In their hubris, in their pride, their sophistication, their their syncretism as they expand their horizons of religion. God says, it's smoke in my nostrils, fire that burns all day. This is an irritant. The sacrifices that God had required back in the law were to be burned on the altar, and it was to be a sweet-smelling Savor. The smoke would arise to heaven in this image, and, and God was to, as it were, lean over heaven and smell the sweet, pleasing sacrifices. And God is saying, what you're doing, it's odious. It's irritant to me. It's, a, it's smoke in my nostrils. It's a fire that burns. And so verse 6, behold, it is written before me, it's right out in the open, God says, right before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. And I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they burned incense on the mountains. They've scorned me on the hills, and therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom, into their lap, into the very soul. I will repay. I will not keep silent. Now, how interesting. The chapter 65 follows the prayer that we saw last week in the end of chapter 63 and 64, where the remnant, the godly people, Isaiah cries out to God, Lord God, look down and, and come down. 
Lord God, hear us. We're crying out to you. We're sinners. We need you. Come, Lord Jesus. And in chapter 64, verse 12, Isaiah prayed, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? And in chapter 65, in answer to that prayer, God says, Nope, I'm not going to keep silent. I'm going to repay. I'm going to say enough is enough. I will deal with sin. A gracious God is spurned, and therefore this gracious God, who is a just God, now acts. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. And he's using this imagery of, of uh, uh, a cluster of grapes that has been harvested, but it's, they're, they're rotten. They're just, you might as well throw that one away. And then someone says, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. There's some good ones in there. There's some good grapes. Don't pluck those out. They'll, they'll make a good wine. God is saying, as the new wine is found in that cluster, and one says, don't destroy it, there's benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. And God sees this chosen people, the people of Israel, like a cluster of grapes, for the most part rotten, sinful, devising in their own thoughts their religion, running away from God as an obstinate, rebellious people. But, oh, but look, within that, there's a remnant, Isaiah, his family, others who, who are walking faithfully with God. And God says, I will not destroy those servants. I will, verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah, and even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Verse 10, Sharon shall be a pasture land for flocks in the valley of Accor, a resting place for the herds, all for my people who seek me. God is saying, I will fulfill my promises to the faithful chosen people. I'll bring them into the land that they will inherit. There will be peace. There will be productivity. There will be blessings in the land from the west, Sharon, to the east, the Valley of Accor, all throughout that land of promise. I'm going to give it to them, to this faithful remnant, to these few grapes in the cluster of the rotten ones. I'll give it to the people who seek me. Now, this is prophetic. This hasn't happened yet. Isaiah as a prophet is talking about a time at the end of, of uh, world history as we know it. By the way, later this summer, Don Den Hartog is going to be doing a six-week series on, on Bible prophecy and some things that Jesus himself said in what was called the Olivet Discourse. Fascinating. God has a plan that is yet to be fulfilled. Some of that plan has to do with the Jewish people. And he's saying here, Isaiah the prophet is saying, God is going to be faithful to a remnant, to those who seek him. But, verse 11, but you who forsake the Lord, 
who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, or as King James says, for Gad. This is a Jew, literally it's Gad. It's a, it's a, it's a pagan deity of that ancient world. And, and you fill cups, mix wine for wine for destiny, or the King James says another god, many, many. These false gods that you've incorporated into your religious cultic practices. You've forgotten me, though. And so, verse 12, I will destine you for the sword. See the play on words? You're, you're offering sacrifices to destiny. Well, I'll destiny you with a sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because I called and you didn't answer. I spoke, but you didn't hear. The God of outstretched hands reached out. You're my chosen people, but they didn't listen. You did evil in my sight, and you chose that in which I did not delight. And therefore, verse 13, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you will go hungry. Behold, look, my servants will drink, but you're going to go thirsty. Look, behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you're going to be put to shame. Verse 14, look, behold, my servants shall shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you're going to cry out with a heavy heart. And you shall wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. And the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Two destinies for God's chosen people. It's coming. A day is coming when a remnant who is going to follow and cry out to God, and they will be spared and enter this, this land of blessing, this time that Isaiah described in chapter 60 and 61 and 62, and we'll get back to it next week. This in, incredible kingdom of the son that was given and the child that was born to us. But others who rejected God will find themselves on the receiving end of God's wrath and judgment. Verse 16, because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. The God of truth. Isaiah uses that understanding of God because he wants to accentuate the fact, I'm not pulling your leg, God says. I'm not blowing smoke at you. This will happen. He who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. There will be a time of great blessing. A time when the king of kings returns and he sets up his kingdom and those chosen people who have followed him in faith. Oh, he says it's going to be a time where troubles will be forgotten. They'll be hidden from my sight and therefore yours as well. But not so with the unfaithful. There's a new world that's coming. A word of blessing, a word of warning in this passage. Now, what does it tell us about God? You know, we come and study the Scriptures, we should always ask, okay, God, what are you revealing about yourself here? And for one thing, God is a God who answers prayer. 
Lord, where are you? You're, you seem to be silent. And God answers prayer, no, I'm not silent. I will not be silent. And I will repay. God answers prayer. The study of the history of, again, Israel will show that the things we've read in Isaiah 65, I, I don't see it anywhere in the history of this chosen people, Israel, but it's coming, and God will answer the prayer. And there will be a remnant, a faithful remnant, that will enter a glorious time when troubles will be forgotten and hidden from our sight. And those who are not faithful will be slain, destroyed. God answers prayer. But second of all, God's patience has a limit. I mean, clearly in this passage, we see a God that says, enough's enough. I will repay. I'm the God of outstretched hands, but all right. At some point, those outstretched hands are going to grab his sword, and the day of vengeance is going to come. There's a day coming when God will say enough and his patience will run out. But in this passage, God is also going to spare that remnant. We see this again. This is a theme throughout Isaiah as an example. Isaiah chapter 10. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have, who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. Historically, there was an aspect of that that was fulfilled when the children of Israel returned from that Babylonian captivity. But this is not describing that. God is going to spare a faithful remnant at the end of the age, and Paul will talk about that in Romans chapter 11. We'll get to that at some point. Here's a, a third thing about God, and that is that God's mercy knows no limits. Um, it stands out, I think, in this passage in Isaiah 65, to a people who did not seek him, did not ask for him, uh, they found him. To a nation which did not call on, on his name, they were on the receiving end of his sovereign grace. God's mercy knows no limits. His outstretched hands our outstretched hands of love to even the most vile, to those who want nothing to do with him. And he reaches out in love. Now, let's go back to the book of Romans. Let's see how Paul, I think this, this I, I think when Paul was reading Isaiah, he would get goosebumps all above down his spine. And then under divine inspiration, he'd pick up that quill and he'd begin to write. Look at Isaiah, or uh, Romans again. This time, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. 
But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes Isaiah. Behold, uh, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And Paul is applying this. He said there, there are nations of the world, there are Gentiles, there are undeserving people, people who didn't even, didn't even seek me, didn't even call out to me, but, but I poured out my grace upon them. My outstretched hands of love reached to them. And they were saved. Because they simply believed it. They believed the message of a sovereign God's goodness and grace. That's what Paul is saying here. But, but the Jewish people, on the other hand, as we saw in Isaiah 65, in their own thoughts, they're kind of figuring out this thing called religion. They're adding this and this, and they're trying to figure this out, and they're adding these pagan worship practices. They're seeking God on their own terms. They're trying to attain a righteousness of works, and God says, uh-uh. No, it's only by faith. And in his sovereign grace, he has reached out. By the way, that would be most of us, unless you're Jewish. You were like, what this means? We would not be here today if there wasn't a sovereign God who said, here I am, here I am, and his, his hands of love, his outstretched hands of love reached out to people who weren't even seeking him. I permitted myself to be found. I permitted myself. I exposed myself. And in sovereign grace, he saved us. You know why Paul, back in chapter 10, when he quoted Isaiah in that passage, 65, in, a, in chapter 10, verse 20, he says, Isaiah is very bold when he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Talking about Gentiles. Paul said, boy, was Isaiah bold. You know why? Isaiah was an official of the king. The, the Jewish king, Hezekiah. I mentioned this over a year ago. You may have heard this and read this, but... Um, uh, archaeologists just not that long ago in their diggings outside the walls of Jerusalem in the same era of King Hezekiah. In fact, they had found earlier a signet ring, a seal ring that actually has King Hezekiah, king of Judah, on that ring. Well, ten, about 10 feet away from the discovery of that signet ring was another ring, official ring, that said, Isaiah the prophet. Oh, this guy. I mean, he, he, he ate and dined and walked with kings, the Jewish kings. He was a prophet for some 60 years. He walked the halls of Jerusalem. Where's Isaiah, they would cry. We need Isaiah the prophet. Oh, he was there. He was a man of influence. He was one of the most righteous Jews of the realm. And this man has the audacity, or as Paul says, the boldness to say, 
if you don't trust in him alone, you'll have no part in the kingdom. But God is going to reach out to those who aren't even seeking him. And he's going to save them. Gentiles. You talk about boldness. In Jerusalem, he speaks of God's love for the world. You see, he loved this book of Isaiah. Paul did. Because Isaiah understood these principles. You approach God by faith. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. He told the king, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah did, if you will not believe, you surely will not last. Will you trust God? Or chapter 26, do you remember this verse? The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in him, in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in the God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Don't devise your own things. Don't develop your own thoughts of how you should be religious. Trust Him. Or the verse that Paul quoted earlier, 28, verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He's talking about the coming Messiah. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed or disappointed. Do you believe Him? Or chapter 40, verse 31, yet those who wait upon the Lord, who rest in Him, who trust Him, they'll gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not grow weary. Trust Him. Put your faith in Him. Or in chapter 55, verse 1 and 3, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money? <laughs> buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you might live. Free grace. What are they to listen to? Jehovah God, who with outstretched hands says, Here I am. Here I am. Listen to me. And receive the free offer as he pours out his sovereign grace and opens hearts, even of people who wanted nothing to do with them. Which, by the way, is all of us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's none who seek God, no, not one. While we were enemies, Paul says in Romans 8. Folks, every one of us are born in sin in this world, and every one of us are heading in a one-way direction straight to perdition, to hell. And then in some way, in some measure, in, at some point in our life, for me, I was a five-year-old kid growing up in a Christian home, and my mom, knowing that um, little Mark is, doesn't become a Christian because he's born in a Christian home, little Mark needs to trust Jesus. And five years old, when I came home from morning kindergarten, that afternoon, mom in the kitchen in our home and that farm in Nebraska once again shared Jesus with me. And somehow in God's grace... I heard him say, here I am, here I am. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, at some point in your life, 
God reached down to you. You heading in a one-way direction to hell, and he said, here I am. And he grabbed you in his sovereign grace. He saved you. And all throughout the world, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because God so loved the world. He gave his suffering servant to die. You see, he's the God of outstretched hands. And on that cross, he took our sin and he died in our place. He loved us enough to stretch out his hands and carry our sins and the penalty that was due us. And he died for us. And then he rose again on the third day, victorious over death, over sin. And all the promises of God that have been spoken from Isaiah and all the other prophets are now ensured. They will be coming to pass because the Savior is alive and the King will come. But there's so many people that have yet to hear this loving God say, here I am. Are there some kids in your neighborhood, friends of your children or grandchildren who need to come to kids camp in a couple of weeks and be introduced to a God with outstretched hands? Are you going away this summer visiting with relatives, some family gathering? I'm going back in July to the family reunion we do every three years back in Nebraska. And, and praise God, 95% if not all of my family, extended family, my cousins, they know Jesus. It's a, it's a great time. I'm going to be preaching that Sunday with them. But there might be some of those kids growing up, some of those teenagers now who might not know Jesus. It'll be an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. How about you? You're going to be meeting with some family? Tell them about the the God of outstretched hands. Maybe you're here today. And like the Israelites of old, or even current Israel, maybe you have been spurning God. You've been pushing Him away. You heard Him say, here I am, whispering in your soul, here I am. And you've run the other way. Well, today could be your day of salvation. Because today, right now, God is saying to you, here I am, here I am. And I want to invite you to open your heart to him and receive right now the free gift of eternal life. The free gift. Because Paul was right. It's received by faith and faith alone and not of works. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You simply have to believe Jesus died for you, and he rose again for you. And when you transfer your trust off of yourself and your religion and your own ways of thinking of how to get to God, and you trust in that one work of Christ, he is your Savior. In that moment of faith, your sins are forgiven. You enter a whole new relationship with the living God, and it's forever because he's the God of outstretched hands. 
Will you trust him today as he says, here I am? Would you bow your head, please? Lord, as we await this end of this age of grace, the beginning of that day of vengeance, and ultimately the glorious coming kingdom, Lord, may we be faithful, faithful in our own walk with you, in obedience to to live a life that honors you, a God who did so much for us, to live in the joy and the fellowship of of our King of kings and Lord of lords, but may we also, Father, be faithful to, to point others to those outstretched hands of love. Because the person we may talk to this week may have been hearing that voice in their soul, here I am, here I am. Lord Jesus, it was you who said, look onto the the fields, they're white for harvest. Thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you for giving us Jesus. May we be challenged to share that good news with others to help them see you're the God of outstretched hands. And we love you for what you've done for us, for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.